You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end of life care. And now, here is your host, Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema. My guest today is Pamela Corley. She's a registered nurse and an actress. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Saul. Where did you grow up? In the city of Chicago. I grew up on the south side of Chicago. So when you look at that young girl in the south side of Chicago, what did you envision of becoming? Well, my mom discovered that my sister and I could sing. I don't even know how. I think we were singing in the house some songs she was playing on a record player. We had record <laughs> players, not CD players. <laughs> Tell her my age. <laughs> and she heard we could sing. She presented us before the church. And we had a singing group, and my cousin joined. And it was three of us girls, and we were called the Three Angels. So we knew immediately we were going to be on stage singers. We were going to be just singing and making albums and touring the world. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the dream. That was the dream. (laughs) So how did nursing come into the picture? Okay, so you may laugh, but I was deathly afraid of blood. And when I decided I wanted to be a nurse at the age of 14, my family looked at me crazy. It was because my cousin, I had a cousin who came to live with us and she was doing her nursing externship in the hospital. She would come home and tell me all the stories. I would see her in her white and I'm like, wow, that sounds fascinating. And so I'm like, I want to do that. I really want to do that. And so years later... (laughs) Of course, I took the plunge, but I'll be honest with you. I started nursing school late, and I was 40 when I graduated. I was one of the oldest (laughs) students in the class. I was up (laughs) against all these little 20-year-old young minds. (laughs) But you managed. I did. You made it. I did. I did. (laughs) (laughs) So why did you choose hospice then? So with a nurse, and especially during the pandemic, jobs were pretty much thrown out at us. There were lots of COVID patients and it was kind of rough. You know, you get burned out. You got burned out really fast um, staying. So I was in between. I I had a burnout time. And what I did was I ended up going to into school nursing. School nursing was very easy, interesting, a little laid back. I enjoyed it, but the hours weren't just enough. <laughs> so I end up transitioning to hospice. Now, I must admit, I was a little bit taken back. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do hospice. Really? I'm like, do I really know what hospice is? And I had my prejudice against hospice because I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do the job and learn it. But I know it's just a death sentence. They're not going to do anything because this is end of life care. And we're just going to just watch them go. Yeah. And that's what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> so you were proved wrong. I was proven wrong. What did you find? Oh, boy. So <laughs> hospice is not just treating the patient. You're treating the entire family. Yeah. And the family is not alone. It's not just the family and the nurse or the patient and the nurse. You have an entire team behind you. You have your chaplain, your social worker, your nurse, your home health aides. I mean, you have so many people 24-7 that you shouldn't have to worry about anything. You need medications. We got you. You need comfort. We got you. You need prayer. We got you. And it, it helps the family. It helps the family with the transition as well. 
So take us back to that first death oh as a hospice nurse. How did you react to it? Um, there was a lady who I had, and it was it was a kind of a difficult case because her caregiver. And, and then I get this; I totally get it because you also have to be the counselor and a psychologist sometimes. <laughs> And the caregiver thought that we were coming in to take her job. And so she was pretty, you know, not so friendly with me every time I came. So what I do normally when I intake a patient, I I go off right off the bat. I have my chaplain there with me. He and I work well together. I'm like, he was a pastor. He would interject and say what he does. And I would tell him my services. So what I did was I let her know that I'm not here to take your job. I'm just here to help you alleviate some of the pressure off of you and help you help her transition. So I got a call. I was all the way in Elmhurst, Illinois. I was with another patient. I got in my car. I got the call. Hey, you know, she's not breathing right. And I'm like, okay, I'll be there as soon as I can. I'm all the way across town. I had to come back to the south side of Chicago. And so I'm like, well, it's no need for me to rush because I already know what this is prepping for this end result. I get there. She's in an agonal breathing. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is my first death. And I'm by myself. (laughs) What do I do with this? So I did call one of my nurse buddies. She met me there. She was the on-call nurse. She came and she was just like kind of telling me, just let her do this, do that. And when I saw her take her last breath, I thought, oh, my God, did I just witness this? What did I just see? This is a woman who I talked with and cared for for like three months. And then I had to pronounce her. And then I'm like listening to all the systems, making sure that I have it right because you don't want to call. And they start breathing again. (laughs) That's the worst thing ever. And so when I saw that, the sister, she was tearful. The caregiver was tearful. And I sat there and I was like, I stepped out to let them have their space. But I noticed that they were, hey, come on in. I'm like, um, okay, okay. And so once that happened, I realized, like, okay, I can do this. <laughs> I can do this. So how did your reactions change from that first to mm-hmm. the others? There was someone who I had read out in Joliet. Yeah. And this family was so loving. And they... They were, they were very scared about the process. And I remember talking to the patient. She was sitting in her recliner when I was intaking. I was doing and I worked on a Saturday. I was on call that weekend. So I walked on a, worked on a Saturday and I talked with her and I was like, hey, you know, this is what we're here for. If you need us, we're here. You're not in this alone. Yeah. I get it. And the mom looked at me and she said, Pam, I'm okay with what's going on. And I'm like, wow, really? And so she said, when I go to sleep on this side, I just Mm want to wake up in Jesus' arms. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wait, I'm supposed to comfort you. You're about to make me cry. Like, what? (laughs) And she was so at peace. Yeah. And then it happened when they gave me the call. I came. The family came from out of town. I stepped into another room. And I remember I had they had a speaker in their in the room I had. So they had a, I guess, camera or speaker in the room. And I could hear them all talking with her. They were crying. They were, you know, just saying their goodbyes. And the next thing you know, they called me into the room. And I'm like, oh, wait, 
is, is it happening? And then they were like, no, we want you to come and participate and pray with us. We want you to come read a scripture. And the scripture that I picked, they start crying. They was like, that's mom's favorite scripture. I'm like, oh, oh my God, how did I pick that one? <laughs> but it was okay. They still embraced. They still were loving. And I yeah. was still able to, I just rubbed her head and just prayed and just, you know, told her it's okay. I feel like those experiences change you. It did. When I got in my car, yeah. I, mean, I hugged everyone. They thanked me so much. They kept thanking me. I got in my car and just took a deep breath. I pulled out from their driveway because I didn't want them to think I'm stalking. I'm freaking out. Like, <laughs> I didn't want them to see that. But I didn't freak out. I drove down the street to a burger restaurant. I was like, I'm hungry. I need to process what just happened. Yeah. And I went and sat on the patio part of the restaurant to eat and reflect. And I started reflecting like, you know, I want to be able to go like that. I want to be able to experience that, have that support system with the family. It's very important to have that family support system because I've been to places where they don't have that. Yeah. We are the family. Yeah. We are the family. And to have that support system there, it really helps. It does. The family feel comforted, but you as the caregiver, you also feel that yes. at least you've done something. That yes. Your presence mattered to them. Mm -hmm. Now, what our listeners don't know is that you're a nurse first, but you are an actress too. <laughs> I so am. I want us to take a minute and just <laughs> talk about the intersection between performance, art, and end of life. But yeah, let our listeners know about your acting background. How oh, did that start? Sure. I stumbled on this last year. There was a beautiful lady by the name of Stacy Clark. She has a production company called Paula Marie Productions. And she reached out to my sister who did a workshop with her some years ago. And she just remembered the flyer with my sister face on it. And they have our, my god brother is a mutual friend. So she reached out to him like, hey, what's the lady's name? I, I have the flyer. I remember her. Can you reach out? He's like, oh, that's my god sister, Cassandra. Let, let me give her a call. She connected with my sister and she told her, hey, I have this play. I want to put on this production. Can you be in it? And do you know anybody else? Because I need to cast this play. And she said, well, let me ask my sister if she, you know, can. I was like, okay. So she gave me the script. I read over it. She said, oh, read the part for Gwen. I was like, oh, okay, I'll be Gwen. And I'm reading and I'm like, wait, Gwen is the main character. I said, what's going, wait, what? And so <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'll see if I can pull this off. I didn't have to audition. I went in there, did a table read. She was like, okay, you're my Gwen. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> the hard part about that was Gwen was so mean and I had to come out of who I am. I'm like, I can't play. She's mean. And she was very bitter and angry. And I was like, I can't play her. That's not me. And people was like, oh, no, that's not her. But then that's when you realize that's acting. <laughs> when you can, because after the play was over, people came up to me was like, ooh, wee. I don't know if I wanted to choke you or hug you. I'm like, oh, well, then I did my part. <laughs> you did your job well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and from there, she did a sequel. She did part two because people was like, hey, you guys left a cliffhanger. Can you write a part two? And she was like, okay. She wrote a part two. We did that one this year. And so here I am about to do another production. <laughs> You're hooked now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what are the skills that a nurse must possess to be successful as a hospice nurse? Number one, empathy. Number one, empathy. Hmm. I always say you need to find a way to connect with that individual 
and then the family on their level. You cannot hold this family A to the same emotional maturity as family B. Two different families. They may seem similar, but how you handle certain aspects of life and things that happen in life, that's what you have to realize. So meet them where they are. If they don't understand and you know, some people are afraid to ask because we don't want to sound foolish. We don't want to seem like we don't know. Well, I don't know. So tell me. I tell them, break it down like a fraction to the lowest common denominator and help me out. Even you have to spell it in crayon. Tell me. So (laughs) I will get a better understanding. So you have to meet a person and the family where they are. Education-wise, social-wise, social, everything. You kind of... When we a nurse, we do assessment. Yeah. We go in the room, we do an assessment head to toe. So I do a head to toe assessment and I also do an emotional assessment, but they don't know because I'll ask random questions. I'll ask things about life. I'll ask things about your childhood. Oh, well, who was this on this picture? So I'll see to gauge and see how you would interact. And you must have confidence. Confidence in knowing what you're doing. You may not know all the answers. You may not do all the steps. (laughs) But be confident enough to know that they can trust you. If you show that level of confidence, calm, be calm, comforting. You show that they will trust you. Families will trust you like, you know what? This nurse, this chaplain, they know what they're doing. I'm okay because they're telling me, they're showing me. You may not even use, I don't use medical jargon. I don't use that plain everyday just me and you talking. I say like we sitting at your table eating some pound cake. <laughs> <laughs> so many people know that hospice is about death and dying. Yes. So in a sense, there's, sometimes there's a lot of sadness. Mm-hmm. How do you not take that home? How do you cope with the sadness at work? So just as I, you know, we all have things going on in our lives. And so what I learned, I used to be a nurse supervisor at a clinic and I think an employee told me one day she wanted to pull me to the side. She wanted to talk about another employee, how she's just not happy with this employee and da, da, da. And, you know, she act like she's my friend. I said, wait, let me stop you here. I said, when I come through this door, I belong to this company because I'm on the clock working for this company. It is no longer my time. It's their time. I'm here to do a job. I'm not here to make friends. I was like, you're here to make money. You're here to do a job. You have to separate that. I was like, once you cross the threshold to get to the parking lot to your car, you can say, and seen. Now I'm back. You're you. You belong to you. (laughs) So you have to know how to (laughs) separate that. I don't want to bring it home because I did bring work home before and it stressed me out. So I learned how to separate that. Shut it off like a fountain. Shut it off. Really? You Just, have to. So, <laughs> you I have feel like to. that. maybe that is where the acting part comes in, it, right? Oh, my God. Because <laughs> it's not easy to just it's shut not, it off. No, right? no. I mean, I reflect for a long I sat in my car I told you I went to a burger spot just to reflect and I'm eating a burger like what just happened you know I'm like what did I just go through (laughs) but it is a healthy habit to leave work at work yes and home at home 
Mm-hmm. But so of, often those two they just intertwine, and when they do that, it, it it really affects our mental health. Yes, it does. So it's important to have practices. You know, many healthcare professionals, nurses, doctors, quit the profession after yeah. COVID. Yeah. What keeps you going? The people. The yeah. people. I mean, a lot of people I notice, and not to say everyone, a lot of people get into it for the money. It's lucrative. I will say that you always will have a job, but I'm, I call myself a social butterfly. I like to talk and see people live their best life. I like to see people be made whole. Trust me, being a nurse supervisor before, <laughs> I was putting out plenty of fires, plenty of fires from, from ranging from the most angriest to the most misunderstood. And you like, okay. What what can I do? Everybody, and I just look up and say, God, just give me the words to say because I don't know what to say to these people because mm-hmm. the worst thing you could say to someone who's angry is, I need for you to be calm. Oh, that will <laughs> set them off. So I knew not to say that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you you have, like I said, you have to meet people where they are. Listen, listening to the people, everybody has a story. Yeah. It's just they want to be understood. They want to be heard. Yeah. Listen to them. So how has your faith helped you deal through all this? Well, when you go through life ups and downs, you start reflecting back how God brought you through because everything don't last forever. When you're in it, you feel like the world is caving in. It's the worst thing ever. Like, oh, I feel so crappy. What what can I do? Everybody's smiling. And I looked at the world. You look at television. Everybody's smiling. The world goes on. Life goes on. You look at when will I get through this? And they always hear you hear this. This too shall pass. At the time, you're like, well, when is it going to pass? Because right now it doesn't feel good. But if you take it day by day. And you have to find things, discover some things about yourself. Let me figure out, instead of me trying to figure out what someone wronged me, God, what what can I do? To, which can you do to change me? Mm. First, let me see me. Mm. Make sure I'm in, line, in alignment. And then all those other things will follow. With that, we'll take a little break again. My guest is Pamela Cauley. We'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Sole Bem and we continue our conversation with Pamela. Uh, what have you noticed some of the misconceptions about hospice? We're there to watch the patient just die. We're not going to give medications. We're not going to give them anything for pain. We're not going to feed them. We're not going to make sure they have all their basic needs, the assisted daily livings. We're not going to do any of that. We're just going to let them lay in the bed and we're going to come in, take a look over at them, and let them just go. Not true. <laughs> so there was a family who was contemplating, you know, we come in, we just do our spill, we let them know, contemplating on doing hospice. They had a mother. You have to realize at this point, I mean, she's bedbound, skin breakdown, not eating, but they still wanted, oh, we need to send her 
just a few more times to this doctor so she can get some things done. I'm trying to think like, is that going to be okay for the patient? Because most of the time we keep people here, not for them, but for us because Mm. we're not ready to let go. Mm. So when they wanted to send her out, I'm like, you know, I'm sitting in my wheels turning like what? But you're like, okay, so what are you planning on doing after that? Yeah. Oh, after that, then you guys, we want you guys to step in. So at this time I'm there and you don't want our services until you go ahead and get these services done. They was like, well, yes, we want to do that. The next day she was dying Mm. and she wasn't on our intake. So then they call, what can we do? We need some medicine. We were like, we can't do it. We Legally, we have no documentation, anything that you sign. So we can't do anything. They wanted our services like right away, right away. Yeah. We can't do that. And it, I felt so awful because I'm like, I was there. Yeah, I was there. That split decision that they made to continue care for healing purposes, it wasn't. For her, it was for them. It was them. for them. And, and that is the thing. Hospice, as we work in hospice, there are moments where we have to have those difficult conversations yes. with the families. Mm-hmm. I remember I was on call on a weekend and I got called to go out because the four daughters of the patient were grieving. The patient had not died yet, mm-hmm. but they were not ready you know, wow. for her death. So the patient's body was beginning to shut down. Oh, wow. But here, one of the daughters was trying to feed her. Yes. And mom was not hungry, so she was rejecting the food. Yes. So because mom was rejecting the food, she was mad. And so the nursing home facility called hospice. So I I went there and I look at the mother and the patient to me looked like she was dying. Mm -hmm. And then we went to a private room to talk to the daughters and they're like, no, mom, you know, she's going to bounce back. We'll take her through physical therapy and take her back home. Uh, and their words could not reconcile with what I had seen. Mm-hmm. Then I'm like, you know, let me be honest with them. I told them, mom is dying. Mom is dying. Yeah. The sooner you accept, the better. Mm-hmm. It will help you too to take care of her better, to, to work out this relationship and yes. have a, a better closure mm-hmm. than believing that she's going to bounce back and go back home. Right. But somehow something clicked. Mm. It's like they were waiting for that level of truth. Ah. All of a sudden something changed in them. Okay. And they received it actually well. Oh, awesome. <laughs> and the patient died two days later. Two days later. But they were glad to have that conversation. It's mm. a difficult conversation because, yes. first of all, you don't want to put your... I thought they would call hospice. Yeah. I thought they were yeah. going to call and because you don't know how those realities land. I don't know. I actually have a personal story like that, but it's a friend of mine. Her mom had a massive stroke in 2021, June of 21. And she was going to the doctor. She had a super horrible headache, which is one of the main telltale signs as as well. She was rushed to the hospital. She had a massive stroke. 
And then she went to another hospital where they could better care for her because her level of acuity was just too high for this hospital. So they took her to a specialty hospital. And I'm, mm. I went to go visit. I saw she was swelling. And I'm like, and I'm looking at her. And I already knew, I'm like, she's brain dead. Mm. So my girlfriend, who had previously lost her father years ago, she's the only child. And her father died tragically. He was he was murdered. And she was present around that time with him during the murder. And she was, I knew she didn't, she didn't get the counseling for that. So I'm like, I don't know, know how she went on with life. I was still distraught. Yeah. Her mom laid in the bed. The doctors came, did all the tests, told her your mom is brain dead. By this time it's September. She said, I believe my mom is going to get up, recover, and she's going to go to physical therapy. And I'm looking, I'm like, no. So a lot of places promised her that we're going to get your mom up. And I'm looking like, what? Who? So I had to have to have the come to Jesus moment with her. I said, no. <laughs> I said, as your friend, as a medical professional, as somebody who even worked in this very hospital where your mom is, yeah. when my first year of nursing, I'm like, listen, I know what happens here. And Let's fast forward to December that year. She's still holding her on life support. I said, your mom is on life support. She's The machine is breathing for her. And I said, I'm going to have a heart-to-heart conversation with you. I am actually an ordained minister as well. Yes. And so I said, I'm going to talk to you as a friend, a sister. I'm going to talk to you as a medical professional and a person of faith. I was like, you may not like what I have to say, but one day, you may not receive it now, but one day you will look back at this conversation and you may thank me or you may not. But I want you to understand, You, I know you believe in God. I know you believe in your faith. I know he wants to heal. Sometimes he don't heal on this side. He'll heal on the other side. I said, but if he does not do it here, do you still believe in him and that he is able to? And she said, yes. Do you believe that he is able to heal your, heal your mom like you said? She said, yes. Mm-hmm. I said, if you have that type of faith, then you will pull that plug because he will breathe through her just like he did from the beginning of time. Mm-hmm. And she said, oh, well, no, I have to let that machine keep breathing for her. I said, if you hear what you're saying, she mm-hmm. didn't. It didn't resonate. Yeah. Six months after that, June yeah. last year, she calls. I was tending to a patient. I said, I'll call you back. Got in my car, called her back, told her, look, I'll be at the hospital. Came to the hospital after I finished with my patient because that was my last patient of the day. Went to the hospital. I saw her and I'm like, oh, I knew she wasn't here. I'm like, she's setting up infection. She's doing everything. The nurse walks into the room. And I will say, guys, I I did something a little unorthodox. The Uh nurse, I knew exactly the nurse could not see say certain things so i read her face when my friend asked her is she gonna be able to go back to her nursing facility and i said and she said well the doctor i said i'm sorry what's your name and she told me your name i said well my name is pam i'm a nurse i'm her friend i was like what she wants to say to you is and i kind of broke it down the truth and the nurse said oh god thank you (laughs) and i knew she she didn't want to get fired so i'm like i'm gonna save your job I'm going to help you out. And at that point, two days later, she decided, okay, mom has had enough. And she decided to release her. 
I prayed. I prayed right there. And I prayed that my friend would have the courage because I'm like, your mom already accepted because she's already gone. She's been gone a year. She yeah. just haven't accepted it. And I get it. It took her a year. Yeah, it takes time. Yeah. But those difficult conversations have to be had. Oh, God. And it's good. You helped that, uh, that nurse. Yes. She didn't know what oh, to God. do. She did. But I, <laughs> Poor nurse. I feel like part of good care is to be able to have those difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. Now, it might backfire, but at least yeah. you're doing right. You're mm -hmm. being true. I feel like honesty really builds trust. Oh, yes. Whether they receive it now or they receive it later, they will appreciate. Mm -hmm. Thank you yes. for being blunt, being honest with us. Oh, yeah. I think those are the marks of good care. So now you've worked in the field of end of life. What should people know about death? Well, death is a part of life. Everyone has an expiration date. I don't care if you're the healthiest person in the world or the most sickest person in the world, you do. I want people to understand that when you, when a person decides to go on hospice or they want to die the way they want to go, you know, it's not that they are being selfish. They're not thinking about you. They actually are because they know it's going to be too difficult for you to handle if they just go all of a sudden. So this is, we, we're the extra help. We're the other hands in the pot. We're the extended family to help you through this process because that person more than likely knows, yeah, they're not going to handle this very well. I need to get some help. I'm looking out for you. And so I want people to know that live your life to the fullest. Look at, please, anybody listening, I know people think insurance is a scam. Oh, this is that. I'm like, look, please have your ducks in a row. It makes those that you leave behind, it makes it much more easier mm. for them. I have seen so many GoFundMes, so many fundraisers, people living, a, well, expired and above the ground longer than they should be because they're trying to find funds. Mm. And I... It, it it puts a strain on a family. I've seen people clean out their bank accounts. I've seen people put up their houses trying to get money. I'm like, you you have to decide. I'm not telling everybody how to do it, yeah. but I told my kids when I took out my life insurance policy, I said, listen, you all have to live afterwards. I'm like, cremate me. And they were like, what? We're not doing that. I said, listen, I'm not here. I was like, I'm not here. I'm going back to dust. I was like, you have to understand, it's cheaper. I said, oh, if you wanted to go through the whole formalities and have a service, that's fine. Go rent the coffin. You can rent it. And then they take you off and to be cremated. I said, easy money. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> take the money, build, live, because I'm no longer here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's powerful that you've thought about that. Oh, yeah. Have you had in hospice experiences where someone who is dying begins to talk to dead relatives. I've, I've seen the gaze. Yeah. I have a cousin whose brother was dying and he started talking to a dead relative in a corner. Yeah. Calling his name like, hey, he's right there. I'm like, mm, okay. And her stepdad also saw angels. He said, they're coming for me. He said, they're right there. And he kept looking in the ceiling like they're right there. And you're looking like, where? I want to see it. But do I really want to see it? But yeah, I want to see it. But do I really want to see it? 
And I've seen the 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 gaze. You want to know. I know a patient is looking at something because that gaze, they're staring. It's like you're not even in the room because they're too focused on what they're looking at side to side. And it's something that I will never, ever forget. It's etched in my memory forever. Like, what are you looking at? <laughs> do, but do those experiences feel religious to you? Well, it's hard to say. Because yeah. some people do have a look, to me, it looked like a look of fear when they go. Yeah. Some people look peaceful. They, when they look fearful, it's like, I, I feel like they haven't finished some things or closed out some things. Yeah. And now it's too late. Like, this is it. Because they have that look of fear. Some, like, I've been waiting for this moment. Yeah. I know this is coming, just like the lady who I had to read the scripture for. She knew. She told me what she wanted. And she was ready. She was ready. So it, it depends on, you know, you kind of look at the dynamics of everyone around you. Like, okay, this person lived a little differently. <laughs> but, yeah, they perhaps weren't ready. But this is their final and last option to be able to cope. Yeah. So, yeah. hmm. With that, we'll take a little break again. My guest is Pamela Colley. We'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Sole Bam, and we continue our conversation with Pamela. Uh, pa, what, what do you think is the most important aspect of being a hospice nurse? Well, I would say, for me, personally, being able to connect with people, being there for them in their time of need. You become a nurse. Well, some people become a nurse because they genuinely want to help someone. You want to help someone live. But hospice is the flip side. And if you have that compassion, if you have that heart, just for people in general, all walks of life, you don't see color, you don't see anything. You just see people. That makes your job worthwhile where you can treat people with dignity and respect. I think that's the heart of it, being able to be there for someone, total stranger, and immersing yourself in that family, connecting with them, being able to be invited back for dinners. <laughs> <laughs> and those are some of the things that's, that is the heart to me of hospice, of a yeah. hospice nurse. Yeah. So I wanted to take a moment and think about this. What have you learned about life working in the field of death and dying? We are not indestructible. We yeah. don't matter who you are, life is short. Make sure you make the best of it. Live to the fullest. If it's something that you want to do, make it happen. Make it happen. You may want to dye your hair purple, pink, and red. Do that for a day. I'm not saying if you work a job, do that all day. <laughs> but if that's what makes you happy, that 
what make you feel good. Do it. I have a whole nother thing. Don't indulge in a lot of bad food. Now, I'm not going to encourage that. (laughs) (laughs) But that's a whole nother subject. But I would just say do things to make you happy. Do things to help someone else. Think outside of yourself. That's what it made me think outside of myself. I'm not the only one in this world that needs some help. This person is worse off than I am. They're lying in this bed. This family trying to figure out how they're going to go on without this person. Yeah. Who am I to say, you know, I'm going home to eat my burger, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, you you really want to just kind of realize that life is just so grand. We take it for granted. We take it for granted. So have you thought about what a good death would be like for you? For me? Pers- yeah. A personal death for myself? Well, I never, I actually, I never thought about that. But if I can answer that now, just to have my family and my loved ones around me and have them to understand that I'm going to a better place so they can celebrate. I don't want all that crying. I know people are going to cry because I'm quite the comedian. You're going to miss the jokes. But... <laughs> But I do want them to know that this, at this portion, mom has lived, my aunt has lived, my sister has lived, my daughter has lived, whoever, if I'm going before them. And she did exactly what she wanted to do. In your opinion, what does a peaceful death look like? When you have your ducks in a row, when yeah. you know this is what I've saved This is what I've lived for. This is what I hope for to be able to transition quietly around the people that I love and knowing that you're wrapped in the arms of God. Hmm. I know (laughs) this is where I'm going. (laughs) Like, see you guys. I love you, but I love him more. (laughs) (laughs) What are your final thoughts? I just wanted to tell people hospice is not a death sentence. Real briefly, I have discharged people off hospice because for whatever reason, they were turned around. That's not every case. Those are rare cases. And I would truly say the families, they were very, just connect with the families. I know you connected with that patient. Connect with that family. Make sure you let them know that you are presence here for them that you are caring about their loved one. Because as you're caring for their mother, remember, you have a mother too. Because you want someone to do unto your mother as you're going to do unto them. Just remember whatever you do, make sure you do the same thing, that you want the same thing to happen for your mom or dad. (laughs) Pamela, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Our project manager is Melissa Caprellian. Our studio engineer is Brian Makenda, and I'm Sole Bema. Thank you for listening. This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to the show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.